Hello, Sarah Marshall. Hello, Alex Steed. Sarah, I have a question for you that you don't know I'm about to ask you. Mm. And it relates to things that happen in the movie that we're going to watch today, which is called Muriel's Wedding. Okay. A dad yesterday was reported to die by way of a, I don't know, like a homemade explosive device, I believe, as part of a gender reveal. An IED? An IED, a gender reveal IED. And it's tempting to laugh at this because, not because of the human of the human misery piece of it, not at all, and it's sad yeah. that this happened. It's sad the ways that patriarchy do the things that they do, both to the kids of the parents who have gender reveal parties, most mm-hmm. importantly, but then also to the parents. But I think it's... It's tempting to laugh at it for specific reasons being that like people who feel like they're on the receiving end of the shittiness of the dadness that you would think of the person who might Mm -hmm. have a gender reveal party. There's a Mm -hmm. cosmic joke there. I I, I bring this up because this is the first movie as we talk about in this movie where there is a direct death related to just a dad being a dad. Yeah, you're right. And I'm curious about what your take is about why this is the thing that happens. Why are people dying and setting woods on fire as a result of having these kinds of parties? Oh, God. I really don't know. I find it so weird because, I mean, this this is a new thing, right? Because we were born in the 80s. And to my I'm sure that there were some people who would like release balloons maybe or something like that. But like, I feel like this is an internet phenomenon, the gender reveal party. Somebody suggested, and I think it was on Instagram or something that it was maybe related to the real housewives franchise, um, um, that it's a thing that happens there. Yeah. I I mean, I think that the trope, at least in, in movies, I don't know if this actually happened, but the trope was like, if you had a boy, dads had cigars and if you had a girl, dads wished you luck. And then uh, there was pink and blue involved. And that's yeah. as far as I remember it going. <laughs> and Luca Brazzi says, and I hope your first child will be a masculine child. <laughs> and that didn't go well, right? That didn't work out? Uh, well, that yeah, that marriage didn't go great. But, <laughs> you know, <laughs> they had other problems, to be fair. <laughs> So I know that one of the big fires that we had, it seems like a long time ago now, but last summer was also started by a gender reveal party. I think similarly by an explosive device or a firework. Yes. And people also make those horrible lasagnas. What? Which are much less dangerous, but very offensive to Italian food. Yeah, where you make lasagna and you cut into it and the noodles are pink or blue. <gasps> but like, like they're not really because it's a pasta, so it's not, you know. Anyway, that's at the lower end of the spectrum. But the two things I can think of as big factors are like the internet, the fact that people do... Also, like these big elaborate prom asks that yes. I feel like weren't such a thing when I was growing up. Promposals. Promposals, excuse me. Yeah. And like these things have the tendency to go viral. So I feel like that's a factor. But also, I feel like I wonder if parents are reacting adversely to the fact that they are in a position to know that the only gender reveal party that you are really going to get as a parent is when or if your child decides to reveal to you what gender they identify as. Right. I'm in no position 
to respond about what is or is not appropriate with regard to like dark humor in particular with communities that feel at risk by gender reveal parties. Like, I feel like no phenomenon could be more illustrative of why this show exists. Yeah, I think that's true. Than a dad who, while doing a thing that is socially harmful and also very possibly harmful to their child and Mm -hmm. definitely harmful potentially to the structure of the family inadvertently blows himself up. Yeah. And potentially harmful to the environment because like how many catastrophic fires can this country have? No more than 200 per year. You know, it's really pushing it. We are a literal and figurative tinderbox. Like there is... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, we are living in a tinderbox and giving off sparks. It's That's a lot. What does a man's belligerence do, right? Yeah. But in this situation, also just to think about the fact that there's not one but two kids who have to know that their dad died doing the dumbest possible and i'm not saying it to be funny no i know you're saying it because you believe it to be dumb and like people you know all kinds of dumb ways to die right and and, but motivated by these weird just social forces that we're trying to figure out on a regular basis right and i feel like the best case scenario is like you did that because you're so excited about your child and you just want to share it that way And then it's like, well, that just really sucks for you because you never had to do that. And like we hyped up this weird ceremony that has come to exist in a way that people are kind of replicating in a meme like way, even if perhaps. And and then like the most sinister approach, I feel like, is like if you make a big show of your child's quote gender, which, of course, you're just revealing the sex of the baby. But like if you make a big show of what your child's gender is then like. It'll it'll be harder for them to change it <laughs> later on. I don't know if parents are thinking that, but it seems you know it seems like it's a conversation that's out there. So okay, I bring all this up because we talked about Miro's wedding, and this is such an interesting movie for all the reasons we love it. We have Laura Littman on the show with us to talk about this. It's fantastic. We are such nerds about this movie and this recording, and I love that yeah. so much. But this movie kills a character in the same way not in the not Mm -hmm. by way of an explosion but this we just see a belligerent dad just being him so hard Mm -hmm. that it kills one of the characters she dies of patriarchy she dies of patriarchy in a laugh out loud comedy yeah this movie is so special that we can say that and then ensure that we're still going to laugh for 70 straight <laughs> and then it's also basically a jukebox about. musical of abba you talk about how this helped inspire mama mia and like that doesn't feel tonally off at all and i was actually thinking one of my favorite things about abba is just how those lyrics just gut you and you're always mm. finding new ones and so i've been listening to waterloo since we recorded this episode because it's been understandably stuck in my head <laughs> and i've been thinking what an amazing lyric the part that goes, and how could I ever refuse? I feel like I win when I lose, yeah. which is like all of the saddest parts of my relationship history in one couplet by this fucking Swedish pop band. Totally. <laughs> <You know? laughs> 
<laughs> and I feel like that is this movie. <laughs> and I like how it ends on a high note too. When they, I feel like I win when I lose. When I lose, <laughs> yeah. And you're just like, all right, we're doing it. Let's go yeah. lose. Yeah, that's why it makes such sense because Abba also is so much fun, and you will be dancing around and having so much fun and singing along and then suddenly you're like gutted and you did Mm. not see it coming (laughs) yeah i mean that's an extraordinary point is that this movie can feature somebody killed by patriarchy Mm -hmm. and be a laugh out loud comedy and that follows the structure of an abba song yeah i think so and it's just pleasurable like it's it's beautiful to look at it's a fun world to visit the movie moves I think really beautifully around the spaces that it's in and just finds the color and the oddity in them like I really appreciate it it just feels like such a complete world every time I come back to it so we are going to talk with Laura Littman about this movie can you just give a quick you know overview about the overall tenor and tone of our conversation with with Laura yeah so we had I don't want to call it geeky because that feels, you know, I don't want to call Laura a geek. She's a very cool lady. We did have like a tiny fan convention for this movie, (laughs) I think. (laughs) Yeah, I think that that's exactly right on. Mm -hmm. She's a fan and we are fans and we came together as fans. Yeah, we, we are super fans. It was a little fandom gathering. I think that we really tried, as you and I have been trying in this intro, to just try and adequately express like how and why this movie's tone works just like the intense light and the intense dark and what the relationships in it are all about and how it is able to do to your heart what it does I would say like I really love in art experiences that are beautiful and fun and gut you and that's why I love girl group songs and that's why I love Muriel's Wedding And so I feel like this conversation was like an hour-long discussion of how like a Ronette song works in a way. It's like, how is it able to do what it clearly is doing to all of us? Like, how is that working? That's so good. (laughs) Why do Ronette songs inspire joy, the desire to dance, and deep melancholy? (laughs) Yes. All at once. (laughs) All right. Any final words of wisdom for the dear listener? Would you like to mention that we might sound a little bit weird in this one? Yeah, there is just there were some little technical blips that are inevitable to recording episodes in three different locations during a pandemic and it's not at all off-putting but you'll notice some clicks and some echoes here and there so it's because laura has a pet dolphin she thought it wasn't (laughs) in the room but it was so there's a dolphin in this one yeah that's not how the show normally sounds but it's not something to be put off by you're gonna get to listen to a great conversation about uh about muriel's wedding yeah I know I'm not normal, but I'm trying to change. I'm trying to become more like you, more of a... It's too late. But I can change. You'll still be you. You can't come in here and threaten rights. I don't care how unfortunate you are. Fuck off. If I can get married, it means I've changed. I'm a new person. How? Because who'd want to marry me? What kind of person marries someone they don't know? You do. 
I want to win. All my life I've wanted to win. Me too. When I lived in Pauper Spit, I'd just stay in my room for hours and listen to ABBA songs. And since I've met you and moved to Sydney, I haven't listened to one ABBA song. It's because now my life's as good as an ABBA song. It's as good as Dancing Queen. Oh, by the way, I'm not alone. I'm with Muriel. All right, just a super quick thing before we jump into the show. Why Our Dads is made possible with support by Knack Factory, which is a commercial and creative video and content production company based in Portland, Maine, uh, that does work all over these here United States. If you need that sort of work done, get in touch with Knack Factory. And we are made possible with support from you, by you. Thank you so much for helping us make this show. We are at patreon.com slash whyourdads. If you're able to support financially, there are bonus episodes that happen uh, pretty frequently over there. And if you're not able to support in that way, that is also totally fine. We're just happy that you're here to talk about quirky, very strange, mid-90s Australian comedies with us. Coming of age tales. Let's get into that very tale right now. Hello, Sarah Marshall. Hello, Alex Steed. This episode is so exciting on several levels. We had not had it planned and it came up from an aside Mm -hmm. in our Fargo conversation. Although I would argue that this has been planned since we started the show in one way or another. It's been fated. Yes, we we just needed serendipity to make it happen. Can you... Talk to us about what we're wading into. Yeah, me and my friend Dippity. <laughs> That's a good joke. <laughs> I really love how this happens. So yeah, as you know, we talked about Fargo with our friend Clementine Ford recently. And we were like, because we had an Australian talk about a Minnesota movie, we should really find a Minnesotan to talk about Muriel's wedding. And we decided to talk about Muriel's wedding because Clementine had a mug featuring the mum from Muriel's wedding. And so our special guest offered her services. Forced her services on you, to be fair, but okay. (laughs) Tell us who you are. Uh, My name is Laura Lippman. I believe I'm... I have to be the oldest guest that you've ever had. I'm very proud of that. Your first boomer guest. (laughs) And I am a crime novelist who lives in Baltimore. And I love your podcast. I listen to a lot of podcasts because I try to walk five miles a day. So you burn a lot of podcasts. And I've been with y'all since the beginning. Jaws was the first episode, right? Yes. You know, that was a natural starting place. And I don't think I've missed a one. It's probably my favorite movie podcast. Oh, oh my gosh. Well, thank, thank that's you. so lovely. Thank you so much. So what, when you saw that we were we were thinking or you heard us talk about Muriel's wedding, like why was this something that you had to be involved in? In my field, we spend so much time talking about this non-issue of likable characters and relatable mm-hmm. characters. I teach as well, and I have a lot of students who say, well, I was told that my character is not likable. I was told my character is not relatable. And I try to explain to them that that's sort of the equivalent of an editor or an agent saying, if you ask them out on a date, that they have to wash their hair that night. It's just, it's a meaningless excuse that people use to end a conversation. (laughs) But it it annoys crime writers so much because it hangs around and it hangs around and it is brought out from time to time. And it's, um, I'm really risking it. It's a big thing on Goodreads. Yes. Now, writers should never 
ever, ever go to Goodreads. You need to understand Goodreads is for the readers. It's not called Goodreads. Yeah. (laughs) I have an account and I can't even use it as a reader because it's like too dangerous that you'll see something Mm -hmm. that'll make you upset about your own work. And you just have to accept that. But they do talk a lot about, well, I didn't like the main character. And Muriel, I mean, actually, she ends up becoming incredibly likable. That's the irony. But Hmm. you start this film with a character who I tried to keep count of how many lies she tells, Hmm. how many misdeeds she commits. And it's, it's impossible. And yet the movie is very compelling, despite having this character who in no way resembles the main female character in almost any movie made in the 90s. Mm. I went back and looked at all the romantic comedies, and I'm not sure Muriel's Wedding is a romantic comedy, but there's just not another movie like this. And it was actually, I think, when it hit its 25-year anniversary, people were writing things about how, hey, you know, it's actually pretty feminist, and this is a totally quirky, oddball movie that no one ever got, and yet it became incredibly successful in spite of that. Mm -hmm. It's, It's slated to become... It's already been a musical in Australia, and they were about to start rehearsing on Broadway when COVID hit last winter. Fucking COVID. (laughs) So, Sarah, can you give us a sense of what this movie is about before we dive in further? Muriel's Wedding is about a woman named Muriel and her wedding. (laughs) It starts off with Muriel basically getting established as the person who gets kicked around relentlessly in both her friend group and her family, which in a likable character movie you could do, right? You could be like, she's a lovable underdog and she's pretty, but she doesn't know it. And she would never steal $12,000. <laughs> in 1994. In 1994. <laughs> which was like $30,000. $8 dollars. <laughs> So the movie is about her finding a friend who she runs off to the big city to live with, the friend learning she has cancer, Muriel helping her, and then being torn between helping the friend who she loves and having the dream opportunity to enter into a sham citizenship marriage with a South African swimmer. (laughs) And I think that's the most concise summary I've done so far. I feel good about that. That is super concise. And I can't believe I'm actually going to add to a summary because it's so beautifully concise. But in the background, there is a drama going on with Muriel's family. Her dad Mm -hmm. is like not even a politician. He is a politician, but not even he kind of an elected official. He's one of he's like a large koi in a tiny pond. He's (laughs) no, he's a medium koi in a tiny pond that he's suffocating in. And he gets involved and kind of exposed to be in a minor political corruption scandal that I I believe is triggered because of Muriel's taking this money. I have seen this movie many times and I still don't know whether I believe that. Like maybe he took more bribes than usual because he had to make up for the dent but maybe also blaming your daughter for the fact that you've been corrupt for your entire life is like a total bill heslop move no doubt the only reason i bring i kind of noticed it for the first time in that we hear this news story and i was trying Mm -hmm. to piece together why it goes down like this but we hear this news story while while she's making out with this guy who she met at the video store he's he's very clumsy Mm -hmm. and you hear in the background very quietly that her dad has gotten 
exposed for this political corruption. And then the next scene, he's asking Muriel to come home on the news. And I was trying to like figure out why. Well, I think it's because they just had the report about the island, the island resort that Muriel went to has been leveled by a hurricane. So I think he got on the news being like, she was just there and maybe she immediately went back and she got leveled in a hurricane. Yes, yes. He was just trying to be a good dad, like our good friend Theodore Cruz. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? Ted is just a trustworthy name. I cannot think of any untrustworthy Ted's, so. Laura, tell us about your first experiences with this movie and just like how it has lived on in your life. Now, I don't have the specific memory, and I had to kind of deconstruct it from what would be logical. It came out in the States in 1995. I was in my first marriage then, and although we went to the movies all the time, I cannot imagine my first husband agreeing to go to this movie. So I almost <laughs> certainly saw it on video. Um, there was a, you know, a video shop on my corner, very much like the one Muriel works in, and I probably would have gotten it there. I loved... Australian films of that time. Strictly Ballroom was one of my dad's favorite mm. movies. That would have come out three years earlier. A very interesting movie to be one of my dad's favorite movies. <laughs> I'm sure I went into it having no expectation of what it was about. I, I mean, I, I'm really a big super nerd, so I prepared to talk to y'all today. And I went online and I looked at the trailers for the U.S. version, which is brought to us by Miramax. So you have that little... PTSD moment of seeing Miramax yes. up on the screen. <laughs> yeah. But they're just the distributor. What, uh, like, I know it's like a, a cliche to like read obsessively into these like we should have known things, but like Miramax, it's like, yeah, I don't see too much. But the, the Australian trailer for the film is so, it's longer. It's like two and a half minutes compared to one and a half minutes. It begins with sort of that wonderfully absurd moment where the movie begins of the wedding bouquet is flying through the air. And and in Australia, they seem to understand that this was an offbeat movie. And when you see the Miramax trailer, you're like, oh, my God, we're like, how are we going to get convinced people? It had the worst taglines. It had six yeah. taglines that I found, and they're t- all terrible. And none of them are. <laughs> what is it like? Sometimes falling in love is closer <laughs> than you think. <laughs> I wrote them down because they were so incredibly awful. A comedy about a small town girl who didn't fit in, but is about to learn how to stand out. Oh, wow. She's not just getting married. She's getting even. No. I mean, and they don't get better. This is my favorite one, though, was you just have to be there. That's true. I mean, that's solid. That's true. <laughs> that's like throwing up your hands and refusing to write a tagline. <laughs> you just have to be there. So I don't think I had any idea. And I think I was actually probably a little bit confounded by it, but in a good way, because, of course, I went in expecting that Muriel's wedding would be the climax of the film, that that mm. image on the poster <laughs> was the moment, you know, because we were in the middle of this period of time in which this was how romantic comedies ended. It was about Mm. three years after Sleepless in Seattle, a movie that I do not identify with because I was a Baltimore Sun features reporter and I was not (laughs) allowed 
to build private detectives to hunt down boyfriends for me. So I, I Do you realize that I went into journalism specifically because I was like, oh, when you're a journalist, you can stalk men you hear on the radio and are fixated <laughs> on. This is a great career. False advertising. Never had a boss like Rosie O'Donnell. Believe me. <laughs> the men in the meeting rang true, but other than that. <laughs> and so you go to this movie and it's like, what is going on? You have to kind of just sort of surrender to it, which is, I yeah. think, I mean, you have yeah. to accept it on its own terms and you have to put away every expectation you ever had about a romantic comedy or whatever you want to call this. And, you know, watching it again, I was like, I don't think I appreciated enough how amazing the ending is, that what mm. really is the happy oh, ending yeah. of this movie, it's, yeah. it's amazing. It, you just sort of take it for granted now, but... There wasn't another movie like it in the mid '90s. This movie, this movie has the same arc as Frozen. <laughs> so, Carolyn, who's the producer of the show, is also another thing in her life it happens to be my wife, and I got to watch a person watch this movie for the first time. Oh wow! I feel like that might have been rough, and it reminds me of the time I very mistakenly brought my lovely gentle vegan friends over got them stoned and then showed them the secret of nim that's beautiful <laughs> knowing everything we know about this movie it's like muriel listens to abba for the first time and carolyn's like oh there's abba in this that's great news and i was like oh you are absolutely in for a treat then <laughs> you are absolutely <laughs> <laughs> and then watching her just become gradually undone at watching the arc of muriel's mom was yeah. oh just so much and what did you say about muriel's mom sarah and the, the uh how it presents in this movie an american movie would never do a mom this dirty or not dirty because it's not the movie's fault but it would never have as brutal a storyline about someone's mother yeah. like we kill moms by like murder and bombs in american movies all the time or like if you're a woman like you can get blown up to inspire a superhero but like <laughs> just quietly realistically like essentially dying of the the disease that is your marriage like we don't i i cannot imagine seeing it just yeah it just devastates me I, i've become obsessed with the actress and i tried to figure out how old she is in the film i mean i really huh. went deep on this she stars in a apparently beloved australian television show playing a 16 year old in 1969 Huh. it's likely and if you look at her face it seems likely to me that this actress is she's her age can't be found which i i approve of because for <laughs> for female actors it's terrible that people know your age so i don't think she's even 40 in this movie mm. oh my god yeah. i mean she plays it so well so sarah reflecting on the things that laura said opening into the episode you and i love characters that are hard to like yes. <laughs> so can you talk a bit about that sarah yeah well and so i remember my parents watching muriel's wedding when it came out on video and i have to assume this is a movie that cleaned up in the video market and didn't do mm. that great in theaters here because it's the kind of thing that like they seem to not know how to sell but then that people are going to like risk three dollars on on a tuesday night <laughs> and then be sort of blown away by and so I have little snippet memories of a lot of random stuff my parents were watching during those years. And then I watched it for the first time, kind of, you know, understanding it 
when I was about 15, because it was one of the movies that IFC had in heavy rotation, which I'm revealing consistently on this show, just decided my entire cultural outlook for a few years there. And I remember watching it and being like devastated by how much I identified with Muriel. And then I went, I told my mom about it. And I was like, mom, I am Muriel. And she was like, oh, Sarah, everyone's Muriel. So like in my family of like wildly insecure women, we've just always loved Muriel. Oh my God. <laughs> I'm thinking about showing this movie to my 10 year old, even though it's rated R. Mm. I, I don't fear any sort of sex or romance stuff in a movie for my kid. And um, her dad is like, oh, no, let's watch more Westerns and violence is cool. And, you know, we're sort of we're very <laughs> different that way. But I was looking at it, I was like, you know, I really wouldn't have a problem with my kids seeing this. Language doesn't matter at all. She knows every bad word in the world, unfortunately. There's only like six of them. Yeah. <laughs> I, I would say the scene, and it's so joyous and I love it so much, is the scene in which... Um, Muriel and Bryce are beginning to try yeah. to make out and it goes terribly oh, yeah. wrong. And the two naked sailors come in and Muriel yeah. can't stop laughing because she so clearly has a penis in her face. Yeah. <laughs> but it's such a funny scene. And I, it's the kind of scene about young women and sex you don't see enough, which is it's all actually yes. pretty positive. You know, she's actually having fun. She's laughing. He's on the floor <laughs> being taken into custody by the sailor. <laughs> Again, that's a scene that I can't imagine in another movie. Yeah. I love the emotional journey of this movie in a big way. Like it takes turns that always feel kind of radical in an interesting way, but they never feel gratuitous. Like the tone of that scene that you just described mm -hmm. changes real fast. Yeah. A couple of times. Yeah. It changes a couple of times for sure. Just the thinking about the tonal changes that happen between when Muriel decides to get married and then decides to not be married anymore. Like that only happens over a 20 minute span in this movie, but it feels like mm -hmm. so much happens. And I can't remember if I've told this story on this podcast, but Sarah knows this story that I was getting interviewed for consideration for like telling some moth stories and one of the responses by the people who were assessing them was like all of your stories don't really have a positive progression like they just have a lateral progression by way of like <laughs> is it happy at the end was there like growth and I love that there's there is growth in this movie but like I like that there's barely growth in this movie <laughs> Yeah, but like with the dad, I think the dad in this movie grows to a realistic degree, which is that he does hor every one of his decisions is horrible and mean, and then he want he makes he reluctantly makes an okay one at the very end. Yeah, which you know that's my dad. Yeah, like he was responsible for the emotional collapse of his wife, mm -hmm. and it's still at the end of the movie isn't like. He is definitely the villain. Mm -hmm. We have Muriel, her twist is realizing that she is becoming her father. She's very much her father. And that's so, I mean, it's it's really, really fascinating. Mm. The mother character, I'm, when you find that one detail that she's burned the backyard. Yeah. yeah. That's a fairly grave and intense thing. Again, it's one of those moments in which the movie surprises you again because this woman is so obviously having a breakdown mm. in front of mm -hmm. everybody and first of all I was thinking today that you could definitely win like 
a bar quiz if you went in and said, can you name all the house slop children? Yeah. <laughs> uh, Perry, Penelope, and the two other ones, and Muriel. <laughs> there, I think there's five. <laughs> First of all, that's the surprise. I'm like, oh, wait, there's that little blonde girl saying, make dad a sandwich. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and there's Joni is the one who gets the you're terrible Muriel. And, oh, and Joni, uh, yeah. So you have these five kids four after Muriel has left and no one is really paying attention to their mother. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I never noticed before that it was the same woman who turned in the mom for steal- stealing a pair of Dr. Scholl sandals. Yes. That <laughs> bitch. She's not even working. It's not even her store. <laughs> She's the worst. <laughs> but yeah, the disintegration of that mother in sort of plain sight and her determination to pretend that her her husband's not having an affair Mm -hmm. that everything's going to be fine and maybe there's a reason and you know maybe she she actually says maybe i wrote the wrong number on the check the scene that crushed me the most this time oh my god is when she goes to muriel's wedding and muriel walks right past her and just like watching her it's like maybe eight seconds of just watching her face as she processes that and like Oh my god! <laughs> yeah, this movie, and for a co- again a comedy that is centered on <laughs> a city coming of age tale and a lot of yeah. ABBA songs, this movie does extraordinarily complex things with its characters. Like we yeah. watch, we watch this mom become undone. We watch Muriel have like a bit of an arc. I love what is the Olympian's name? Bryce Brock. Bryce? Bryce is the video guy. David, is it David Van Arkel? Yes, yeah. David. I love the arc with David. I think David might be the best man we have ever had on the show. <laughs> Not a deep field, apparently. <laughs> right, ex- exactly. He becomes, his level of interest is I I don't not like having you around and that level of honesty is so shocking. Um, I really, really love what this movie does with all of these characters. And again, like I can understand, you know, thinking about Miramax as a distributor in the mid nineties, I can understand their conundrum. Mm -hmm. It's like, how do you sell this movie to people who are expecting sleepless in Seattle? Oh my God. I mean, don't do that. Cause then people are going to walk out, you know? And, and I feel like this is also kind of a Miramax thing. Like they distributed a lot of movies in the mid nineties that they would sort of elevate from the festivals or, you know, buy from foreign rights or whatever. And then we'd be like, okay, people aren't going to come to the thing that it is. So we're going <laughs> to tell them it's this adjacent thing and do a really confusing ad. And it's like, okay, I, I can you not trust the consumer to like, like the thing that it is and be intrigued by it because i do you know that's yeah sarah if you want to make money no speaking of like the complexity of what happens in this movie this is the kind of movie that really expands your mind about how much of a roller coaster a movie can be in terms Mm. of being so genuinely funny opening your heart in this joyous way in one scene and then two seconds later you know, just ripping it out, basically. Like, it opens it, and then it rips it out, and then it puts it back in and opens it again, and you're just, at the end of it, just lying on the floor <laughs> like Bryce. <laughs> totally. What's the uh, the Australian drag queen movie that came out at the same time? Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. Like, that's another movie that feels similar to me in that, like, I can imagine the way that it was advertised was, like, 
this is zany party fun. Like, come on a road trip with us. Yeah. This trip isn't like other trips. And then, like, how would you describe what happens emotionally? <laughs> in the movie? I, I think this comes a year after Priscilla. Oh, does it? The marketing was. It's another movie from Australia. You like those Australian <laughs> movies. That's a fun country, right? You know four things about it. It's interesting to me because I also read up on the director. This is his first film. Which is incredible, by the way. I am yes. just appalled by that in the best way. <laughs> this is based on a true story. His sister really did run away after stealing you know, money from her family when she was supposed to be selling cosmetic kits. Oh. And for years, sort of all he had was... That's the beginning of the story. And he said mm -hmm. that Muriel is much more based on his attitudes toward his father, who he said was a terrible bully. But he also described it as he wanted it to be the anti-Crocodile Dundee. Huh. Well, he, he did it. <laughs> Success. You know, I, I rewatched that early in the pandemic because one of the first actors to die of COVID, I won't get his name right. I'm embarrassed by that. I, I think it was the first name of Mark. He played the jilted fiancé in Crocodile Dundee, and he played mm. the husband in Desperately Seeking Susan. But, yeah, Crocodile Dundee, oof, you know, and the idea is that, <laughs> it, you know, the naive outsider who's so genuine, who comes to the big city, and there's some pretty stereotypical pimps and prostitutes, and probably also a New York cab driver who isn't, you know, native to the United States. It's got some big issues. So making an anti-Crocodile Dundee. <laughs> Julia, of course, even in the Crocodile Dundee years, had this amazing, amazing movie world going on. I mean, it was, we had My Brilliant Career, Gallipoli, mm -hmm. The Chant of Jimmy Blacksmith. I was very geeky about movies in the 80s. I saw everything and I loved Australian movies and thought I saw, you know, especially something like my brilliant career. Mm -hmm. No one, you know, remembers making movies like that. Yeah, Australia at, the, at that time had an extraordinarily vibrant independent, well, it wasn't independent cinema, it was like national cinema that was operating kind of similar to like what American independent cinema looks like. Films that are as good as only independent films are yes. allowed to be here. <laughs> Hogan went to film school with Jane Campion and <laughs> he got some sort of grant to start this project. His wife... Joyce Morehouse had made a film called Proof that had some success, and that helped them make Muriel's Wedding, and the distributor was a French company, which I think had distributed the piano. Hmm. And then it did huh. so well in Australia, Miramax brought it to the United States. Hmm. That's wild. Sarah, can you talk about Muriel's uh, relationship with her, her dad? Like, what is, yeah. what's going on there? And what, like, who is he to his family and who is he to her? So I would say that one of one of the people in America in the 80s who knew more about Australia than others was my mom because she married a guy from Australia. <laughs> and my dad grew up in both New Zealand and Australia, so his accent is very hard to do. But when I saw Muriel's wedding and we got to the part in the Chinese restaurant, we really first see Bill Heslop lay into his kids, especially Muriel. I was like, oh, my God, is this a cultural thing? Is this what they do in Australia? You just... When you have dinner, you have to verbally abuse your kids. Mm. Is it culture? And then I was like, no, I think it's, um, well, yeah, but <laughs> but in a more complicated way that maybe more involves like age and how much your own dad traumatized you and that my dad and Bill Heslop are both men. Bill is a man who, based on this viewing, and this is what reminds me of 
what my relationship with my dad has been like at times. Just looking at his children upsets him. Just looking at them makes him feel the need to lash out at them because they are revealing who he is. He has spawned five no-hopers. So is he that or what? And a line that I had forgotten and just really loved this time, I mean, it's so sad, but it's so good. It's just when Perry, who's, I think, the eldest son, is playing football, I guess, with himself in the backyard. With a milk curtain. And just narrating and doing his, you know... Heslop, 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 how can a man be so strong and so fast? You know, just just playing with himself in the garden, basically. And this enrages their dad, who just opens the window and goes like, Perry, wake up to yourself. Eventually, the next time we see the dad towards the end of the movie, he is having that awakening, which is tragic. It's like, Bill, wake up to yourself. Yeah, oh my God. Larry, it sounds like you watch a lot of movies. Like if you were to watch Mariel's Wedding with your kid, would you talk about this relationship? Do you talk about relationships as they present? And like, how would you talk about Bill in his relationship with his family? Mm. She would have a lot of questions. Actually, the hardest thing about watching a movie with my daughter is that she wants to know every step of the way, what are people in the movie thinking? Mm. She, I know she would be obsessed in Muriel's wedding. She'd be like, what are those girls thinking? What do they think about Muriel? And, you know, she has a lot of experiences, even at 10, with mean girls and the way they operate. Mm. So she would be shocked at the dad. I mean, she's never seen a dad like that mm. outside mm. of a fictional portrayal. And I don't. I think it would be really hard for her to wrap her head around having a father who is that mean. Mm. She's seen Strictly Ballroom. She's seen him as Barney Fife. Yeah. <laughs> you know, even Strictly Ballroom, which is a more traditional film in terms of you know everybody ends up with the right person and everybody's happy and the bad people suffer and the good people are dancing. This movie would be tough on her. And now that I think about it, I think actually it would be the dynamics of the family that would be too mature for her and the story of the mom. Sure. Yeah. You know, that's, you know, not something that would be easy to explain. How can someone be that mean? How can someone be that beaten down? How does a family get to that place? We watch a lot of romantic comedies together. Over Valentine's Day weekend, we were doing projects around the house. And I know we watched, this is kind of out there, Never Been Kissed. If you think about Mm -hmm. it really hard as a creepy movie, no matter what, (laughs) the teacher was attracted to the student. We like, you know, we can't get past that. We watched 10 Things I Hate About You. Perfect. And then we watched The Goodbye Girl, which is a really Mm. interesting movie to watch now. Mm -hmm. And it actually holds up pretty well. There are a couple of things, especially about that portrayal of Richard III, where... I was just thinking that. I was like, when you said the phrase holding up, I was like, hmm, that Richard III is the first troublesome area, I think. (laughs) That's one of the ones where after the movie you have to say, well, so people used to have very stereotypical ideas and he was being forced to play a gay man as if this is what gay men were like and it was really insensitive and stupid, but it was not unusual in, I think that's like a 1979 film or thereabouts. I want to say even earlier, but yeah, 70s. Yeah, I wanted her to see it for Quinn Cummings, who's a smart, smart mouth 10-year-old. And mm. I knew that she would love that the best. So something like Muriel, it would be, it would that father would be really, really difficult for her to understand. Mm. I don't think, 
there's actually probably some things that she's read. There's some, you know, kids' books get pretty intense now. Yeah. Mm. But movies, we tend to stay on the happy side as much as possible. Yeah, and this, I was noticing this time, the last time this happened to me with a movie, it was uh, Greta Gerwig's Little Women, which is the last movie I saw in theaters. And I saw it a couple of times, and both times I, like, made it maybe eight minutes in, and then I cried and then I was just in a continual state of almost crying or actually crying <laughs> for the entire movie. And that's what Muriel's wedding was like for me today. And I feel like, yeah, it's funny to think about because I was like, yeah, the thing that I wish that adults had thought more about when deciding what media to withhold from me or view as appropriate for me when I was a child, especially a very young child. Like, I wish adults thought more about sadness, mm. you know, because, like, it is wild to me that we're like, land before time sounds great. <laughs> Any story where an abandoned child tries to nudge their dead parent awake, great. But what if there's something sexual that the kid probably doesn't understand? Or if there's a word that they might say if they hear it, like, no. And I just, like, as a kid, I was like, can we please, just not the sad stuff, not the dead parents. And I really, in retrospect, like, I gravitated toward the movies that had kind of a darker outlook, but, or a darker world, but whose characters weren't orphans. <laughs> so, like, I loved Watership Down, because I was like, this is a very scary movie, but, like, these are adult men. Like, this is a group of bunnies that are representing soldiers in World War II and you can tell that and they're not like these big-eyed helpless little baby bunnies who have no one to tuck them in like they're adult men rabbits and I was all about that and like Land Before Time I am still too young for it. Kids and sex and what people are scared to talk about and I came from this super prudish family my father was extremely strict about we weren't allowed to leave our rooms if we weren't wearing bathrobes. Even if we were wearing flannel nightgowns that went from wow. our necks to our ankles, you had to have on a bathrobe, no cursing ever. If I went to a movie with my father, and this is like when I'm a teenager and he thought there might be cursing in it, we sat in different parts of the theater so that he could laugh and respond to things that he wouldn't want me to know that he was laughing and responding to. Wow. Oh, wow. I never thought of that as a tactic. That's a fascinating tactic. So yeah. I've kind of gone the other way and I'm sort of like, I just don't think there's anything dangerous in talking to my kid about sex and kids, kids are really smart. If you only answer the questions they ask, they'll be fine. Mm. <laughs> like don't answer the questions they're not asking. They'll freak out. My daughter has taken to watching on Hulu reruns of how I met your mother. Mm. And there's so much sexual innuendo in that show. And the other mm. day we were taking a walk and she was singing this song about two beavers are better than one and she <laughs> thought it was hilarious and I was like do you know what you're singing and she's like yeah beaver is a word for boob <laughs> and I explained to her what beaver meant and it's fine then she, she lets it go yeah and then you know and you're like oh I didn't mean that actually yeah because you don't actually <laughs> want to make a beaver joke in front of your friends if you don't know what it means because you might you might end up embarrassing yourself it's also a very interestingly dated word I feel like people said that in the 70s yeah it's in breakfast of champions like Kurt Vonnegut makes a beaver joke it's in the world according to Garp yeah exactly. <laughs> that's how far back we're going <laughs> 
So you were you were from a British place and you're trying to go in another direction. Absolutely. I found out one day I was driving my daughter somewhere on an errand and I realized from something she said that she believed sex equals penis and vagina and nothing else is sex. And I said, mm-hmm. no, no, no. Sex is what people find pleasurable as long as everybody's consenting. It's like the most important mm. thing you need to know about sex is that everyone agrees that it gives them pleasure and they all agree that they want to do it at that moment in time and they're all having a good time. I said, well, let me just give you my example is if a man went to a woman and said, it would give me great pleasure to watch you eat a banana. And the woman said, mm-hmm. I would love to eat a banana in front of you. And they did that and they were both happy. I'm like, that's sex. I love that. I wish you taught my sex ed courses. <laughs> yes, same. My we God. Got, we got way more information than I quite knew what to do with at the time. Or I just realized how many risky situations I would have dodged had I understood everything you just said. What sex is. Yeah. <laughs> I would have been way less manipulated into weird shit for a long time if I'd known everything you just said. I was sitting here and I was trying to remember what media I was consuming when I was 10 years old. And I was like, okay, I know that I wasn't watching like adult sitcoms yet because there was a specific moment when I discovered Will and Grace. That was like the first sitcom I watched. And it was when Grace was dating Gregory Hines. So that was later than that. And I know I was watching a lot of Hey Arnold. And I was like, was I watching adult TV yet? Uh, And then I was like, oh, I know what I was watching when I was 10. And it was Bill Clinton getting impeached. Very much about what sex was or wasn't. And at the same time told me nothing useful. Sarah, it's interesting what you were saying about the way that you watch this movie. I related in a huge way. Like I... This is one of those movies that I watch on the verge of tears the entire time, every time I watch it. And Mm -hmm. I can't quite pin down why that is. And I felt exactly the same way about Gerwig's Little Women. Mm. You know, like (laughs) when I watch movies like this that I have those feelings about and I watch it with Carolyn, like I can tell she's always checking in to see if I'm still alive because I'm that kind of silent you are when you're trying not to cry, you know? And I, God, I feel that way about this movie for so many different reasons. I mean, just for the fact that these two friends find each other, yeah. that they re-find each other. We haven't even talked about Rhonda yet. I can't wait. There's, you know, <laughs> sort of all the revelations that happen, like all the stuff that happens with the mother. But like this thing that we're kind of discovering in these later episodes is the ways that we are like the bad characters. And the thing that strikes me about how I relate to Mariel this time around and not in the ways that she's tragic but in the ways that she's like kind of like nefariously tragic and Mm -hmm. she starts to realize about herself is I just feel so glad for her that she had all those realizations at 22 and it didn't take her five or six years which is like defines my mid-20s like I was not a great person from 22 to 28 and I was like having these realizations over the course of years and not a 90-minute romantic comedy (laughs) You know, if you really look at the timeline of The Empire Strikes Back, Luke is only in the Dagobah system for like three days or something. And you're like, how much training did he do? So you got to condense. You got to condense. Speaking of like leaving behind your dad, you know, saying what is or isn't your responsibility. That took me years by degrees. Like it took me not in spite, but because of the harder aspects of my relationship with my parents that I stayed so close to them for so long. Yeah. And I still can't say why. I guess out of the feeling that if you stay 
nearby, then like the breakthrough will just, it'll happen. A watched pot always boils. That's the saying. Yeah. Same here. I mean, I now in retrospect feel guilty when I tell people that I ended up taking care of my father and they're like, oh, that's so nice. And it's like, "Ah, no, it wasn't. I don't think it was necessarily by choice. (laughs) I feel like who we are and how we conceive ourselves morally is based on what options we see in front of us. And different people see different options. And I feel like you didn't see the option to not. Yeah. And a lot of people would have seen the option to not. I'll dig your car out and I'll take care of you if you're dying. That's where I'm at. That's my love language. I won't love it and I won't pretend to love it, but I'll do it. (laughs) Very much being my father in every way possible. Laura, can you talk a bit about Rhonda and Mariel and Rhonda's relationship, how they come together, what we love about them? So, you know, Rhonda, the line is something like, you dropped out of high school in 10th grade and I dropped out in 11th. (laughs) Yeah, we dropped. They're meeting at that resort where, you know, Muriel, Mariel has gone chasing the popular girls from her school, thinking if I show up where they are, I'll become part of them. And They're, of course, just horrible to her. And I think there's that moment, I was thinking about it a lot on this watching, in which this is something that no one in high school will ever believe if you try to tell them when they're in high school. But years later, you meet people who knew you in high school, always liked you and thought you were cool and wanted to be your friend. And you never saw them and had no idea that Mm. they existed because Mm -hmm. you were so focused on the people who didn't want to be your friend (laughs) and the group that you couldn't get into. And so Rhonda shows up and she's just like immediately kind and funny and just wants to be her friend and she's like you know Mm -hmm. I'm I'm always up for a wild time and she is in fact always up for a wild time I mean one of the things that made me sad thinking about this movie from the outside about this is one of Rachel Griffith's first roles and she's so Mm -hmm. amazing and she went on to have a pretty great career and I think a lot of people know her from Six Feet Under Mm -hmm. but I think it's two years later she's used so horribly in the movie My Best Friend's Wedding. Oh, she was in that. Oh, I forget who she was in that. I haven't seen it since. I I think I saw that when I was 10. I can't remember if she's the one who gets her tongue stuck to the ice sculpture or not, but it's basically these two cousins. All they're given to be is horny. It's like they're Mm. the two crazy horny girls from the South, and then at the end they sing a pretty song together. And you're just like, to watch Rachel Griffiths in this movie and to not immediately find a dozen wonderful, fantastic roles for her. It's such a failure of the imagination. I was like keeping notes to when I watched it yesterday. And I said, mm-hmm. once in my life, I would like to be as happy as the character Rhonda appears to be when she's singing that ABBA song. Yeah. 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 She's so electric. <laughs> she's glowing. She, and You know, it takes Muriel to kind of needs a little bit of a buildup and then she gets that mm-hmm. happy too, but she just goes charging into it. It's a terrific character and a terrific performance. She's probably my favorite character in the movie. And she is, of course, in the end, the person that Muriel realizes is the best person to run off with. Not a guy, mm-hmm. not those horrible girls from her high school, but it's Rhonda. Rhonda's the closest thing she has to the love of her life at that point. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, I love them so much. I love this speech when Rhonda is in the rehab center trying to relearn how to walk at that point when it's still on the cards and she asks Muriel why she's doing it and Muriel says to her that back in Porpoise Spit, which is where where their home was, she used to sit in her room all day and never leave the room and just listen to ABBA songs. But since she's come, she hasn't had to do that because her life is as good as an ABBA song. Oh, it's mm. so lovely their relationship is so nice 
those kinds of relationships in particular, like in the mid nineties, like I don't think those kinds of relationships existed on screen. Yeah. If it was Thelma and Louise, they had to, you know, die at the end. Yeah. Right. In, in an American movie, you can have that great defining love with another woman, but then you have to die and you have to ambiguously kiss before you die, <laughs> which is fine. I'm not against ambiguously kissing, but you know, I was just thinking about how this movie has an ending that I love it also is similar, and maybe this is just a good way to end a movie, to the ending of The Dark Knight, which we discussed last time, and also <laughs> Citizen Ruth, which are like three endings that just like leave you sitting filled with feelings and like, I have experienced something. And maybe in the case of The Dark Knight, it doesn't quite logically square, but who cares? In Citizen Ruth, it is Ruth running out of frame, and then we cut to black. In The Dark Knight, it's Batman riding away and then we cut to black and in this it is the taxi leaving porpoise spit and disappearing out of frame yeah I don't know I I love finishing a movie and just feeling just feeling that I am feeling so much it just really means a lot to me I feel like I'm leaving home in earnest right the first time that I was just like decidedly going away and you feel so great for them because you know they make this promise to themselves early on that they're not going to end up back home and they do end mm -hmm. up back home and so it's like equally satisfying that they get to live up to their promise which is absolutely absolutely lovely sarah where do things leave off with muriel and her family so muriel steals the money from her parents initially she has her mother write her a check to cash and then she takes $12,000 to go on her vacation to chase her old friend group that doesn't want her and threw a drink in her face. And then presumably uses some of it to move to Sydney and live with Rhonda. Something I realized as we were talking about this is that this is actually a movie about a family of thieves. <laughs> Bill is corrupt and he's taking bribes, which he calls commissions. Muriel's mother shoplifts. And Muriel steals the money from her parents. And she steals that dress at the beginning. Right. Well, didn't her mom steal it? Oh, yeah, potentially. Yeah, I think her mom stole it and gave it to her. But then she's faking that she's a bride-to-be and going around Sydney and having photos taken of her in wedding dresses, which is, like, not theft exactly, but it is, I don't know, a kind of emotional fraud or something. And if you want to get really detailed about it you can say that you're you're stealing their time and therefore their possible <laughs> commissions you know the resolution of that for her is squaring up financially and emotionally so her mother dies we are told initially that it was a heart attack and then Muriel's sister Joni who's the one who was really the closest with their mother says that it was pills and so at the end Muriel has to come back for this funeral of this woman who no one fully or ever really at all appreciated, it seems like, including her. And her dad is like, you have to stay. You have to take care of the kids. Deidre, who I've been having an affair with for all this time, doesn't want to help me take care of the kids. Like, you have to help. And she's like, no, I don't. Like, taking responsibility in your life also means not accepting anything that anyone wants to hand to you and actually saying like, no, this is your responsibility. They're your children and you're the ones who's been traumatizing them for their entire lives. Like, that's on you, that's not on me. Rejecting responsibility that you 
to the best of your ability, understand to not be yours means that you can accept responsibilities that are yours. You know, this is the first time on this watch that I realized the name of her fake fiance when she's trying on all those wedding dresses is Mm -hmm. her dad's name. Yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh. (laughs) She has the ex-fiance Tim, which is, of course, also made up. And then when she's asked, what's the name of your fiance in that first wedding shop? She says, Bill. Yeah. What do you think that's about, Laura? <laughs> I don't think I can, you know, it such has such an obvious Freudian feeling to it, except mm-hmm. I don't ever see her that way. I don't see her as being particularly close to her father. He's been too unkind yeah. to her, you know, to have him say he, he blames her for not being able to keep the secretarial job. And she's like, well, then how did I get through secretarial school? And he's like, cause you know, I, I paid that off. I mean, he wants mm-hmm. it every which way, which is you're useless but also I do everything for you. And he's horrible. I mean, he's just really just the worst. So when she says Bill, I just think it's actually a failure of imagination. Mm. I noticed this go that there is this repeated refrain in which Muriel's mom says that her dad just wants to be proud of her is like worried about Mm. her wants to be proud of her. I saw this movie in a new light in so many different ways. And just that exchange that she has with David, where he looks at her in disgust and is like, who would marry someone that they don't know? And she, she turns it back around on him and says, you did. And he said, I'm doing it to win. And she said, so am I. Yeah. My imagining is that what she wants to win is like to finally show you know, her dad, who is horrendous in all of the yeah. ways that he is, and then her friends who treat her the same way that her dad does, the most obvious trophy to her is that for whatever reason, even though everyone sees, ironically, how destructive every marriage is that's presented in this movie from her friends mm. to her parents' marriage, she wants to win by getting married. And I loved that scene between her and David, and I loved mm-hmm. her shutting him down In a way that, you know, I don't think registered with him immediately, but eventually maybe kind of sort of registered somewhere down the line. That to me kind of, whether it was intentional, I really think you're probably right, Laura. It's a failure of imagination, but it's just he's the biggest man in her life. And like he's the creator of the universe. She talks about marriage as success constantly. Right. The only thing within her grasp. And I also think that marriage for her represents transformation. You know, Mm. you literally take someone else's name I mean, when she meets Rhonda at the resort, she <laughs> pretends she's not Muriel Haslop. She's like, no, I'm not. Like, that's not my name anymore. And then she has to tell <laughs> mm-hmm. the lie of like, well, are you married? She's like, why would you ask that? But she has gotten it into her idea that she needs to transform. And the only transformation that she can imagine is through marriage. She can't see anything mm. else for herself. And I think by the end of the film her great achievement is that she no longer wishes to transform. She's like, you know what? I'm fine. I'll be happy in Sydney. I had a good life there. Mm. I'll be happy with Rhonda. We have fun. I'm going to help her out. You know, she's not going to be able to walk again, but you know, I'll be there for her and, and we'll build a life together because we don't actually need to change or transform. And Rhonda is also the first person who just immediately loves her as she is. I am aware from my own experience, that it is infinitely scarier to be wanted and accepted for who you are because you're like, no, you're stupid. And I must continue pursuing this guy who only looks at me with abject disdain and marry him. And then once we get married and I put the big dress on and take the big dress off, like then I will be worthy. Then I will be a bride. 
to me, the, some of the growth at the end is Muriel going to the person who wants her. Like, out of all the people in this movie, Rhonda is the one who wants her and who wants her as herself, as Muriel. And that's surprisingly hard to do. Yeah. I mean, there's that almost like cliche meme at this point where it's like, you know, get yourself a man who looks at you this way. <laughs> the way that Rhonda looks at Muriel is so special. Yeah. Like in between them, but also in film, like there's a magic between them that's really beautiful. And there's a magic mm -hmm. that we, you know, as, as you just said, Sarah, like we see Muriel have to essentially realize that she's had the whole time, which is again, like this is kind of beat for beat frozen in frozen which i love we have these two sisters who are essentially there for each other there's some sort of fissure that happens like this sham marriage in the movie mm -hmm. and then at the end they're reminded that they are each other's love and they were each other's love the whole time god it really is frozen yeah there is a song and dance number that's not abba but it is uh what is that guy's name who is in book of mormon who everyone likes josh gad yes there is a josh gad song and dance number but it's essentially the same thing and and i love that Muriel finally realizes that the way that this woman was looking at her is like what she should have been chasing the whole time. And like, she's finally yes. going to get a chance to make some time with that person because it is, it's beautiful. Can we talk a little about, there's some really sly one-liners. Yes, please. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite one is, you know, so Tanya, the bride, the reason she's at this honeymoon resort is because she's realized that the man that she just married is cheating on her because she's found lipstick of a color she would never wear on his penis his name is yeah. chalk yeah. Uh, at one point i guess it's Rhonda says to muriel well why isn't she here with her husband and she's like chalk can't come and that was the whole setup of <laughs> why was she giving him a blowjob because he couldn't get it up and she looked down and there was the fake lipstick and there's also the moment of you know when muriel sits with him and they're like she's apparently drinking a screaming orgasm they're like let muriel finish her orgasm as she sits there and drinks with him <laughs> and i think there are probably even more lines like that that i didn't catch throughout the movie but this time i was definitely picking up on just and they're just wonderfully done they don't draw attention to themselves something that made me laugh very very hard on this watching is when she meets david the swimmer from johannesburg who is going to have to you know swim in australia for political reasons and they're talking about the riots and the unrest in South Africa. She says to him, are you black? <laughs> <laughs> that line is so good. And the whole time when she's off camera sticking her tongue out at him for Ooh. no... <laughs> she's not a worldly character. I also think that Tanya, who's kind of like the queen bee of the mean former friends, gets a lot of good lines. Like, I love it when a script is generous and like everyone gets to say a good line. The villains get a lot of good lines. They're not deprived of that. And I love at the end, Muriel comes and comes back to Porpoise Spit where Rhonda has been living with her mother and is miserable and they're having the mean girls over for tea. Muriel comes and whisks Rhonda away and they just insult the mean girls and get in a cab and Tanya storms out and she's like, you can't talk to me like that. I'm a bride. I'm beautiful. <laughs> It occurred to me that one movie that does owe a lot, one U.S. movie that does owe a lot to Muriel's wedding is Romeo and Michelle's High School Reunion. Oh, sure. Yeah, totally. Which actually has the insight that those two women together are more important than any 
yeah. romantic relationship. And again, they get to face down the mean girls and win. Yeah. It, it's very satisfying. That movie is so special. Yeah. And, and that they are each other's soulmates. And that frees them up to just find joy and, and do a, a thruple dance together. <laughs> <laughs> In the way that this movie is, it's like equally committed to its character in weirdness as well as its sweetness like somehow I mean that's that's what's so special to me about this movie is that it's it is extraordinarily sweet and it leaves you sort of in that like ecstatic cry place a lot of the time but it's so Mm -hmm. weird like this movie is (laughs) weird and Romy and Michelle is that way too where it's like these are absolutely lovely people my god I love Mira Servino's portrayal so so much she's so Mm -hmm. strange as like a leading as a as a leading (laughs) character and I oh god I love that movie too Sarah we need to cover that soon yeah we do I don't think there's a single dad in that movie. I don't care. (laughs) I would say the one thing, the only thing I can ever criticize Muriel's wedding for is that I think everyone who watches it the first time is like, well, actually, even though the doctor says no, can you get cancer from too much sex? (laughs) I mean, and they're really adamant that no, that's not how it works. But there is just something about the juxtaposition of, you know, falling down and discovering that you have this tumor right after you've been having a lot of really fun, rigorous sex. (laughs) It's been a while since I've seen this and I was glad to recall that it was a tumor because in my memory, I thought that she, in her fall, she hurt her spine and that's the reason, you know, so this is better than that. But yeah, some caveats still could be... could be offered there yeah it's a little confusing if if you're young perhaps another reason to not watch it as a 10 year old because you could absorb some weird cause and effect ideas from that we'll wait till she's 13 i think 13 is a good age for muriel's wedding yes totally it's fascinating that this movie which is a comedy which is the is it the first abba sing song comedy i'm pretty sure it is given credit with inspiring mamma mia oh of course it's popularity was said to be the springboard for creating the Mamma Mia musical. And you know how much I love Mamma Mia 2, Here We Go Again. That is one mm-hmm. of my favorite movies. It's Wine Mom, Rocky Horror Picture Show. It is mm. the best. I would not swear right now that if I get married, I will not walk down the aisle to I do, I do, I do, I have <laughs> So I just would like people... To admit that ABBA is good, like, I feel like everyone's like, well, they're universally beloved and their songs light up all your pleasure centers and they've sold, you know, more units of music than almost anyone, but they're not good. And it's like, no, they're they're good. Like, if you don't like ABBA, then that's fine. A lot of people don't like things that are good and a lot of people don't like pop music, but ABBA is good. I mean, I, I thought it might be required today that we each say what is our favorite ABBA song. And I thought about oh. it a lot. And I decided I'm definitely, it's definitely for me, it's Super Trooper. Mm. I would say that too. I want yeah. the Colin Firth Oompapa in there from Mamma Mia too. But yeah, Super Trooper is a song I really love. And I I don't know, I think it's just because I've traveled so much. So I really identify with this idea of Aww. I'm in another town and I miss my family and I just want to come home. Yeah. I don't think it would have been this before the second Mamma Mia, but like Fernando is my favorite song of theirs. It's ridiculous. It's a ridiculous song. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't I think a lot of Swedish supergroups at the time did songs about unnamed Latin American <laughs> wars. <laughs> <laughs> totally. <laughs> I feel like to me it's always neck and neck between 
Fernando and Super Trooper because those are the songs that out of all the ABBA songs most give me the tingles. Like ASMR doesn't work for me, but I assume that the people who it works for experience it the way I experience ABBA, which is just like cascading tingles. (laughs) (laughs) We absolutely know who the dad is, Bill. Um, You can't stop progress. Yes. Who is the daddy in this movie? I I think Rhonda's the daddy. Uh, Yeah. Yep. (laughs) So for me, Rhonda's the daddy because she's the character who makes you feel good about yourself. She's going to take care of you on an emotional level and she'll do anything. She's up for anything and she's up for anything that'll make you happy. But she knows when you're taking it too far. (laughs) That's what you need. It's from the moment she shows up. She has this very real and genuine and uncomplicated love for Muriel as she is. And that's just so attractive and so wonderful. It's like the biggest, Sarah, you already said this, the biggest challenge is to figure out how to accept love from someone who actually sees you as you are. Mm. And that's Rhonda's great gift. We're defining like, who is the daddy in terms of platonically? What does your daddy do in your life? Love you unconditionally and hold you to accountability because they love you. Right. Or because you have genuinely gone too far and you have affected their life. Whereas the Bill model, and I think the model familiar to me and a lot of dattery that I have studied, is it's really not about the child that you're looking at. It's like you're using your child as a mirror and that's all you can see. And just being seen by someone, I think, is uh, that's what makes her that, too. We went into this and I talked a little bit about being a crime novelist. And one of the things that crime fiction has been wrestling with and will continue to wrestle with, it's so much of it tying into why our dads. Like 80 to 90 percent of crime fiction written to date could be filed under a beautiful woman dies and a man feels bad about it. (laughs) And ugly women die, and he's like, eh, eh, eh. <laughs> the ugly women who die, that's usually for character development. It's like, oh, my oh, God, yeah. someone murdered 17 prostitutes, but I'm going to hug my daughter tonight, man. <laughs> so, you know, this idea that so much of the work that I'm exposed to is about either the man did it or the man has to solve it or it's his beloved or he's been falsely accused. But so much of the stories in my field are incredibly patriarchal and do not question the idea that men should be at the center of them and that Mm. women are just, you know, bodies that pile up along the way. Or maybe you'll meet someone nice who will cook you a hot meal when you come home from figuring out who killed all the prostitutes. And then be like, you've changed, Billy. You used to always come to Easter service with me and the kids. Now I don't know who you're married to, me or your law firm. That was an impression of Sissy Spacek in JFK, but also like every wife in almost every movie I've seen about this stuff. I think it's the first time I've ever been in a conversation where someone dropped a a deep JFK, the movie cut. (laughs) I appreciate it. I I do want to give honorable mention to David, and I'm giving this guy sort of a a lot more credit than he probably deserves. But here's some things Mm. I like about David. He doesn't treat it as more than it should be. He's like... Let's finally kiss, even though I was terrible and disgusted this entire time. He starts to think it might be something, realizes it's not something, doesn't try 
any further than that and lets her keep the money. That's the real clutch move is that he lets her keep the money. <laughs> totally. He's like, whatever, it's my parents' money. I love that so much. She gets <laughs> to take the money. That's great news. <laughs> Something I'm curious about, and I don't know if they resolved this in a way I didn't notice or if, you know, the emotional context is supposed to propel us forward. But, like, they were supposed to live together for three months. Yeah. And then they got married. And immediately she's like, I got to bounce. And he's like, okay, it's fine. And then she's like, good luck with the Olympics. And he's like, you too. And it's like, <laughs> no, no. Like, are you allowed to be in the Olympics or what? Are you, like, are you just letting that dream go also? Or are you going <laughs> to? Whatever. Yeah. I just, I love that that plot point evaporates to make space for the force of the emotional resolution of the movie. And if it is addressed somehow and I didn't notice, I'm very sorry. It's like, not that important. We don't really care if he swims in the Olympics. We never really do. Who cares about the silly old Olympics? But you know, David's a daddy in training. Yeah, yeah he'll get there. <laughs> and when his swimming career is over, maybe his daddy career can begin. So can I ask what are wrapping pitches for getting people in the theater seats in 1995 to go and see this movie? What is our wrapping sell for Muriel's Wedding? My tagline is, it's the best movie that you didn't know you wanted to see. Mm -hmm. you, you want this movie, you love it, you just don't know that yet. I would say, like, this is a movie for you, and it is about you, because... In some way, because you are a human being, you believe that you are not worthy. And if you don't, then that's great. And I want to hear what you're doing. That is the sort of universal condition that it's about. Learning how to not find love, which we act like is the hardest thing, but to accept love. Beautifully well said. I would just say that uh, if you've only known about Mamma Mia and Mamma Mia 2... <laughs> there is somehow a better and weirder way to package an ABBA comedy. And Australia figured it out. And they did it first. Laura, thank you so, so much. I can't believe that this happened. It's very, very <laughs> exciting for me. I mean, I really do care about movies. And I have found that a lot of podcasts devoted to film just aren't very good. Hmm. Well, we're glad you're hanging with us then. <laughs> You know, I, obviously I love Karina Longworth that, you know, that's been an amazing series, but there's a lot of really not great stuff out there where people just don't have anything to say. Well, you know, what is film about? This is the eternal debate. Is it about beauty and, and art and the human condition or is it about men shouting over each other? <laughs> <laughs> That is it for this week's episode of Why Our Dads. We want to thank Laura Lippman for coming onto the show and talking about Muriel's wedding with us. It was truly wonderful. We had the best, best time. And thanks so much to Fresh Lesh for the beats. You can check out his music at freshlesh.com. Thank you to Carolyn Kendrick, our producer and our music director. You can find Carolyn's EP, Tear Things Apart, at carolynkendrick.com. Uh, you can find us on social media at Dads. We're on Instagram and we are on Twitter. <laughs> Those are the places to find us. Next week, we'll be talking about The Wrestler with Gabby Dunn, which we are very excited about. And then the following week, we'll be talking about clueless with christopher thomas uh thank you so much for listening we really really appreciate you uh we look forward to connecting with you again soon